Well, there is a place that I used to love to go to when I lived in Spokane, Washington. And it was called Frank's Diner. For the last 14 years, Frank's Diner has won the award for the best breakfast in Spokane. It is just an absolute treat. The, it, I don't, we don't do it in the UK. I don't know why that is. I, I think if someone's a, a business idea, this is a great way to go. They start at 6 in the morning. The doors open. It's a sort of a, it's a railway carriage. And in you go. And, uh, you know, it, it's fantastic breakfast. And one of, one of my favorite waitresses, uh, I used to love being served by this lady because every time she came and took your order, it was with wide-eyed wonder and delight. It was like this was the first time. And uh, she, you know, she would, she'd, she'd come up, and I think her name was Gage, which is an unusual name, but she used to come up and she'd sort of say, do you want some rocket fuel? <laughs> yeah, we'd love some. And they'd keep pouring the coffees till you left. None of this pay for a second cup business. That's what I love about America. They just keep filling it up until you're so amped up you're ready for the day. <laughs> but anyway, she'd come and take your order. It was a beautiful thing. She'd come up and she'd say, so uh, what would you like for breakfast? And you go, well, I would like eggs and bacon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and how would you like your eggs? Would you like them scrambled? Would you like them uh, sunny side up, over easy? Over easy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> would you like some hash browns with that? Yeah, we would. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Would you like a little bit of gravy on there as well? No, no, no gravy. Okay. And off she'd go. And so like 12 minutes later, she'd come back with this plate of more fried food than you needed in a week and it was huge and she'd put it in front of you and she would say and this is what I love she'd put it in front of you she'd go it's party time (laughs) (laughs) and and that's exactly how it felt because you were so excited as well she was excited you were excited and uh, yeah party time now can you imagine with me that you were in in work tomorrow you're with your colleagues and one of your colleagues walks in the door and they say hey it's time to celebrate and rejoice and you say well well why and they say i'm here it's party time now what would you think about such a person you think oh well must have had a good night last night. I don't know. What, 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 what pre, prepossesses somebody to, to, to view themselves in such a way? What an extraordinary thing to do. Well, I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. No, chapter 8. No, chapter 9. Let's do chapter 9. We've moved on. Chapter 9. And that's page on 974 in the church Bibles. Page 974. If you're visiting for the first time, the big numbers are chapters, the little numbers are verses, and they weren't in the original, they're there just to help us find the bit that we're talking about, and we're looking at Matthew chapter 9, verse 14, I'm going to read down to 26, page 974. What's extraordinary here is that basically this is what Jesus says, I'm here, so it's party time. Amazing. Let's look at it. Then, Jesus, then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? 
The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. While he was saying this, a ruler came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died. But come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. When Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd, he said, go away. The girl is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread through all the region, and no wonder. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask for his help, shall we? Father, we thank you that when Jesus shows up, there's always news, uh, great reasons for rejoicing and delight. Lord, help us to see that, Lord, perhaps for the first time, or even to see it afresh, that that joy would carry with us as we head out into life this week. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a bit of cultural background here about fasting. I think that would be helpful. Uh, The fasting referred to in this section is the choice of depriving yourself um, from food. Not as we might do, just to reduce the pounds a bit. It's not for physical benefit, but for a spiritual purpose. Now, in the Hebrew Scriptures, there's only one time in the year where the, um, the Jewish people were commanded to fast, and that was on the day of atonement. As you read through the Old Testament, you'll also see that there were days where people chose to fast, and very much it was an expression of um, their sorrow before God, of their mourning over their sin. Uh, they, were, they were fasting to say, God, we are so sorry for the ways that we've offended you because of our sinful actions. So you do see that happening, but it was only commanded uh, to actually happen once in the year, the day of atonement. Now, by the time you get to Jesus' day, um, the, the religious leaders of the day, the sort of the keen, really keen Jewish people, had, uh, like the Pharisees, they developed a whole series of additional traditions of how they sort of worked out the Old Testament in their lives. And they'd added lots of extra elements to it. And one of the things they'd added was uh, that if you were really serious, uh, then you would fast Not once a year, but uh, you'd fast on two days every week. That's how you showed you were really serious um, uh, about mourning before God and being, uh, being right before God. Now, this was kind of a voluntary thing, but the problem with man-made traditions that are voluntary, quite quickly, they become sort of um, 
expect it. And those who um, follow those traditions uh, notice those who don't and start kind of um, looking down their noses at them and saying, gosh, you're not really serious like us. They can be a real problem of uh, pride, of, um, you know, because you, you're, you're truly going for it. Now, can you imagine how galling it must have been for the Pharisees, having so afflicted themselves two days every week uh, in fasting, to notice how Jesus and his disciples just seemed to be going around having such a good time. There was no real hint of fasting going on. In fact, uh, last week, if you were here with us, you saw that um, Jesus, uh, having spent some time with Matthew, went and had a feast at his house. And they were criticizing Jesus' disciples. Why is it that uh, Jesus goes and has feasts with these undesirable, uh, sort of morally repellent people? Far from fasting regularly like a pious Jew should in their own minds, he was fraternizing with the people that you shouldn't even be with and having feasts and just having too much of a good time. This was a bit of a problem. Now, reading between the lines, it seems as if they're muttering, uh, they must have also started muttering to some of the followers of John the Baptist. And the followers, the disciples of John the Baptist, eventually come to Jesus and ask the question of verse 14. How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, often fast, we could say, but your disciples do not fast? And this is where Jesus gives that surprising response. And it's in form of a question, isn't it? Verse 15. How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? Now, there's three things I want us to see about this response. Three things. And the first thing is this. The bridegroom means it's party time. It's party time. I mean, think back to all the weddings you've been to. Um, How would you describe the basic vibe of a wedding? It's joyful, isn't it? It's a celebration. Um, It's a celebration of love and of life. Two people want to join their lives together. They're so excited about doing it. They invite their friends to witness. And everyone sees them smiling at each other. Everyone starts smiling back. It's a time of joy and celebration. And in the first century culture, the great excitement really kicked off when the bridegroom showed up. When the bridegroom turned up, then the celebrations really began. And the wedding feasts could actually, uh, it wasn't just like a meal, it would be several days of feasting. And the bridegroom turning up was, was, was the thing that kicked it all off. Now, the bridegroom's presence is not a time for fasting, but feasting. Everybody knew that. Now, for us in our culture, uh, it's not when the bridegroom turns up, is it? It's when the bride turns up. Now, that's the big moment of excitement. There is the bridegroom anxiously standing at the front of the church. I've done it here many times now. And we're waiting for the bride to show up. Uh, I had the privilege of being best man at my brother's wedding. And um, 30 minutes after the service was due to start, the bride had still not turned up. My brother was starting to get a wee bit anxious. And uh, I remember turning to the mother of the bride and mouthing, Where is she? And she smiled and looked at Steve and said, she's not coming. (laughs) 
but she's a bit of a prankster. And five minutes later, the bride came, and everybody was so relieved. And then the, sort of the joyful celebrations began as we worshipped God together and then headed off for a great meal together. Now imagine um, it, with the bride turning up and, and the joy of the wedding. How, how odd at the end of the service if the, if the minister basically says, uh, now please come and join us in the hall afterwards because we're going to have a time of mourning and there's no food or drink whatsoever. What would you be thinking? Rubbish wedding. Maybe I can get that present back. So it's a bold thing for Jesus to say here, isn't it? He's saying, look, like the bridegroom at a wedding, I am here. And that is the reason for joy. When I'm here, it's party time. How could the disciples of Jesus fast when he was with them? It's not a time for mourning, it's celebration. Jesus is really the life and soul of the party. Now why is it that this mourning for sin is out of place when Jesus arrives? Well, that's the question that gets to the heart of the good news, doesn't it? You know, how does his coming turn sinners mourning over their sin into joy-filled, celebrating people. Well, we actually saw the answer a few weeks ago. If you turn back the page to the beginning of chapter 9, look at verse 2. A paralyzed man is brought before Jesus, and he says these astonishing words at the end of verse 2. Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. This is why uh, this mourning over sin goes when Jesus comes. Because Jesus offers forgiveness of sins. He comes to change our lives forever. Uh, the, the next verses of, of the calling of Matthew and, and the party at his house that got the Pharisees so kind of annoyed, um, why were they having a feast? Well, it was quite simply this, because Matthew had received forgiveness of sins. And he's celebrating that he'd become a follower of Jesus. And he invited his friends to share in his joy. And Jesus says, look, I've come not to call those who don't think they're sick. I've come for the sick. I'm the doctor that heals people. I'm the person who forgives sins. I'm the one who brings joy. That's why a morning over sin sort of fasting has no place whatsoever. And uh, it, this just becomes increasingly clear as we read on in the text, doesn't it? Uh, you know, just look at what happened next. Verse 18. A ruler of the people, we, we learn elsewhere, his name was Jairus, a synagogue ruler. He comes and kneels before Jesus and he begs him to come because his daughter is dead. But he knows that if Jesus just comes and put his hand on her, then she will live. And en route then, this other woman who's, who's been suffering for 12 years, she's been weakened and blighted by this uh, problem of bleeding that wouldn't stop. Mark tells us that she'd gone to many doctors, spent all that she had, and she, the doctors just make her worse, not better. Twelve years of misery. But she thinks to herself, um, verse 21, if only I will, could, could just touch his cloak, and then I'll be healed. And that's what she does. 
And that touch of faith transformed her life and restored her to full health. Do you see how cool it is when Jesus turns up? Do you see that his presence is every reason for joy? If I just touch his cloak, I'll be made well. Twelve years of misery gone in a moment. Better still, he comes to this house of mourning. And the professional mourners are already there. I suppose part of the funeral fees, would you get these people coming in and they'd be playing their flutes and they'd be weeping and wailing. We don't do this at British funerals, but we've seen enough TV shows in the news of what happens in other countries when death happens. There's no inhibition, is it? People crying out, shouting out, mourning. Um, I don't know whether you remember when one of the dictators in North Korea died. They had all the film shots of people on the streets, all the soldiers crying their eyes out, you know, paid to do so. And actually, if they didn't do it, they would be really mourning. So, well, they had professional mourners. Well, you know, how incongruous, how weird to have mourners when Jesus turns up doesn't make sense you can't be mourning when Jesus is there and so he says go away go away the girl is not dead she's asleep now he didn't mean by that that she was actually just sleeping he did mean that she was dead but to Jesus death is merely like someone for us being asleep we can wake sleeping people he can wake dead people He merely puts his hand on this girl and death has to flee away. Just as much as the mourners rush off, death has to rush off and he touches this girl and she gets up. Now what do you think is the sort of the reaction, the response of the parents as this little girl gets up? As she walks around the room, as perhaps she heads out on the streets? You've just seen the mourners rushing off out of the house and then the girl comes out. Is this a time for mournful song? No. I mean, strike up the music, the band. This is celebration time. This is joy time because Jesus has come. The very presence of Jesus means it's party time. It's joy time. It's celebration time. How brilliant. The bridegroom has come. Forgiveness of sin has come. New life, new resurrection life has come because Jesus is near. And all of this forgiveness is possible because Jesus was purposefully heading to die on a cross. Uh, He was offering his own life as a sacrifice in the place of sinners upon the cross, so that forgiveness of sins could be extended to all who receive it by faith. And that's what Jesus is referring to in the second part of verse 15. The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. See, as they see Jesus arrested, falsely tried, crucified, die and buried, then they would indeed mourn. And then Sunday would come. And with it, the greatest joy of all, meeting the resurrected Jesus Christ. So the bridegroom coming means it's party time. But secondly, the bridegroom coming is another reason for great joy in here. And it's simply this. The bridegroom means that God has come. 
several times in the Hebrew Scriptures, the, the Old Testament part of our Bibles, God makes this amazing analogy that he is like a husband to his people. Isaiah 54 verse 5 says this, For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The God of all the earth is your husband. Isaiah 62 verse 5, As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And in the first part of our service, we read from the Old Testament book of Hosea, didn't we? Where God draws a direct line between the difficult marriage that Hosea had with his unfaithful wife and God's relationship with his ancient people. And God speaks of a day when the people will stop being unfaithful to him, always worshipping idols and, and false gods. Instead, it says this, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. Do you see that when Jesus uses this analogy, he is claiming to be God. God is the bridegroom of his people. Now, one of the privileges of marrying people is I often get to look at the bride and the bridegroom in their eyes as we do all the promises. And you know, I haven't been at a wedding yet where the two of them aren't just looking at each other and there's that look of longing, of love, of desire. They want to be together. They're, they're making these amazing promises together. And, 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 and it, there isn't any sort of closer moment, is there, of, of human relationship than that love of uh, a bridegroom and his bride. And this is the very analogy of what God takes up and says, actually, this is what I will be to my people. I'm the bridegroom rejoicing over my bride, my people who I'm gathering to myself through the death and resurrection of my son. It is absolutely wonderful. I don't know why God chose to marry such an ugly bride, uh, but he did. And he showers his grace and his love and his compassion. And this closest of tenderest of relationships is the very analogy that God uses here. Now the disciples of John the Baptist maybe are not that clear about this, but John the Baptist has been very clear. If you keep your finger in Matthew, turn over to John's Gospel, chapter 3. You'll find that on page 1066. 1066. John chapter 3, if you look at verse 26, some Jewish people are grumbling again about ceremonial washing, and they come to John and they said this, verse 26, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, meaning Jesus, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride 
belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. John was clear that he was not the Messiah. He was not the bridegroom for God's people. He was merely the best man. And it was his joy to kind of introduce people to Jesus so they would follow Jesus. And you see here that the bride that belongs to the bridegroom is this crowd of people who used to go to see John the Baptist, but now they're heading to Jesus. It's the crowd of people who are of, 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 of men and women, boys and girls, who are recognizing that Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus is the Messiah King who's come to save and rescue them, and they're thronging around him. And by coming to Christ, we are drawn into this closest of loving relationships to God. Now, this is such a significant change that the third thing that we need to see here is that the bridegroom means that the old has gone and that the new has come. All the old traditions and structures of Judaism could not contain this new reality of what Jesus came to bring. Now, look back at Matthew chapter 9. And these two little analogies of uh, verses 16 and 17. Remember the context is that the disciples of John the Baptist had come to Jesus with the question about fasting. Now, that really should alert us to a question. There's a problem here, isn't it? Why are there still any disciples to John the Baptist at this point? Haven't they completely missed the point of what John the Baptist came to do? John the Baptist had come to point to Jesus, and they're still hanging around John the Baptist. It speaks the fact that they had really missed the point. Because when Jesus comes, everything is changed, and they're still going on about the fasting stuff and the preparation. Now, we might struggle to relate to these two analogies today, um, I think if we get a rip in our clothes these days, clothes are so cheap that we pretty much go our way and buy a new pair of trousers or whatever it is, a new skirt or whatever, whatever women buy. And, um, you know, but I suppose in days past when money was tight, you would patch things up. And Jesus says, well, how useless it would be to sew a, uh, a new bit of cloth on an old garment. Because if you do that, as soon as it goes in a wash, it's going to shrink and it's going to rip and make it worse. Quite straightforward. Now, we use wine bottles today, but in their day, uh, they used to use animal skins. They used to treat them and, uh, and, and sew them up, and that would be the container for wine. But, you know, how crazy it would be to put new wine that's still fermenting in an old wine skin. It would have no elasticity in it. And if the thing is still bubbling away and expanding, the thing is just going to burst and you're going to lose everything. It's going to ruin the wine skin and it's going to ruin the wine. There's two pretty straightforward analogies, isn't it? You see, the point that Jesus is making is this, that uh, King Jesus coming has changed the Jewish religion forever. That's why Christianity is different to Judaism. See, there's no more need for animal sacrifices that they used to do in those days because all those animal sacrifices prefigured the reality of Jesus who had come in that once-for-all sacrifice for sins. There'd be no more need for priests. We don't need priests today. We don't need altars in churches. There's no sacrificing that needs to go on because 
Jesus is the once for all sacrifice and he is the high priest. We don't need to go to a special place. We don't need to go to Jerusalem, to the temple to meet with God. Since he has come and died and is raised, he is the true and only meeting place between God and man. You don't need to go to a special place. You come to God through faith in Jesus. So all these things of of the old Jewish faith are now redundant and gone. Jesus hasn't come just to add to the old faith. There's something new and transforming in it. Yes, he'd come to fulfill it. But you can't just add him on. And certainly you couldn't uh, keep going with all these weird traditions of man that have been added on to add extras to the Bible. All that had no place whatsoever. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament expectations, all the promises, all the structures. You see this uh, in lots of ways, like in the passage before us, but very starkly on the night before he's crucified as they meet to have the Passover together. This festival that they used to do every year reminds them to look back to the time where they were redeemed out of slavery in Egypt. But Jesus takes the very symbols of that meal and he reinterprets them, doesn't he? He breaks the bread and hands it out and says, this is my body broken for you. And he passes the cup. This is my blood poured out for you. This is the blood of the new covenant. So now they're not to kind of look back to the Passover. They're to look to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ as the foundational moment, the the beginning of the new covenant. Jesus, the bridegroom, has come. Forgiveness of sins is possible. Our lives will be transformed. He comes to change our hearts, to pour in his Holy Spirit on all who trust him. No, this new wine cannot be contained in the old. So my question is simply this. Have you put your wholehearted trust in this Jesus, this bridegroom for God's people? I think some people hold back from the Christian faith because they think, oh, it's going to ruin all my fun. There's no, all my, all, there's no joy. Well, I, I, I don't know who you've been hanging out with because the Christians I hang out with are actually full of joy. There's full of delight. There's, there, there, there is a, a great joy in knowing Christ, truly knowing that your sins are forgiven. Knowing that you're in this closest relationship possible with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, Do you see how amazing it is when Jesus turns up? Everything changes when Jesus turns up. When you understand that he's the bridegroom, then you know that you've got nothing. You'll, You'll lose nothing that's worth it. And you'll gain everything. This is true in life, but it's especially true as we face and contemplate death. To place our hand in the hand of Jesus at the point of our death is to know that even though we may die, then one day we too will will hear his voice, his touch, and be raised into everlasting life. So death is not to be feared. Have you done that? Have you put your hand into the hand of Christ? Have you trusted him for yourself? 
If you've not done so, would you do so today? Why not do it today? What holds you back from experiencing this new life, this new wine that Jesus has come to give? Just turn to him in faith. Say sorry for your sins. Thank him for his forgiveness. Take hold of Christ today. And my friends, if you've done that today, I hope you've been freshly reminded what an awesome thing it is to have this Jesus in your life. And I want to say to you, rejoice. Let's recall it. Let that deep joy in our hearts percolate to our faces. If Christ is near, it's party time. Isn't that good? It really is. Um, That waitress in Frank's diner, she was excited about bringing you a plate of fried food. She was. That's why I love going. It was to see her excitement. Have we got something that's better than that? Oh, I think we have. Fried food will just eventually kill you. Jesus will raise you. Let's share this with others. Let's pray.